listening to Marist Connections, a podcast produced by the Marist Alumni Office, which highlights members of the Marist family, including our alumni, students, faculty, staff, coaches, and many more. Hello, everyone. I'm Amy Woods, Executive Director of Alumni Relations at Marist and a graduate from the class of 1997. For the fourth season of Marist Connections, we're bringing you stories of alumni and faculty authors and their experiences with writing and getting published. Today's guest is Derek Dellinger, the author of The Fermented Man, as well as three books on hiking. Hi, Derek. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. Derek Dellinger is a writer, photographer, and brewery consultant. He's been working at Plan B Farm Brewery in Poughkeepsie since 2018, and in his spare time is a blogger and an avid hiker. He graduated from Marist in 2007 with a bachelor's in English. Derek is the author of America's Best Day Hikes, 50 Hikes in the Catskills, 50 Hikes in the Upper Hudson Valley, and The Fermented Man. His first book, The Fermented Man, A Year on the Front Lines of a Food Revolution, follows Derek as he spends a year living off nothing but fermented foods while chronicling their history, cultural significance, and evolution. He goes beyond yogurt and sauerkraut to show us how fermentation occurs in a wide range of foods we might never have expected. From foraging for living bacteria in the modern American grocery store, to sampling mucousy green century eggs in Chinatown, to an epic winter quest to Iceland for rotten shark meat, Derek investigates a realm of forgotten foods that is endlessly complex and surprisingly flavorful. Thank you for joining us, Derek. Great to be here. Uh, before we get into the book, we've been asking everyone, how have you been doing with this pandemic? I know you live in the Hudson Valley, so it's different everywhere you live in the United States, right? So how have you been doing? Yeah, I mean, um, I've been doing okay. I know you're um, interviewing authors for this season, and I'm curious if their uh, responses to this trend differently from the uh, norm, because having extra free time for a year to just read and write and walk around outside uh, is probably a little easier when you're an introverted writer type person. So I, I think I've probably held up uh, a little better than the norm. I mean, it's uh, not, you know, been a productive year at least. So it's, you know, can't, can't complain about having extra time to work on writing projects. And good year for hiking. I would say. Here for hiking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the trails were certainly crowded. Everyone yeah. had that idea. So, yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully a lot of people found the opportunity to uh, get back to nature and reconnect to the, you know, to the natural world a little bit this last yeah. year. Yeah, I've noticed it. All right, so we think for, first and foremost, the question on everyone's mind is probably why. What inspired you to only consume fermented food and drink for a year and to write about it? Yeah, um, you know, I, I wonder that myself sometimes now, now that I've put myself through it. Um, I, at the time, I mean, I, I didn't think of the idea originally with the intent to actually do it in, as a book. So I, I definitely walked into it a bit, um, a bit naively. Um, originally, I was just like, this would be a cool project that someone, not necessarily myself, uh, could do to sort of performatively demonstrate how ubiquitous fermented foods are. Um, the fact that we all consume them all the time and have since the you know inception of, of civilization, essentially, um, they're you know a really 
important and ubiquitous part of what we eat. Um, and extrapolating from that, I was like, oh, you could you could pretty much live off of fermented foods. Wouldn't that be interesting? I wonder what would happen. Um, so that was just kind of a thought experiment that I originally kind of talked about on, on my blog and Twitter and whatever, just like, you know, what, what that would be like, what would someone eat, what kind of health benefits would it, would it have, or, or what kind of repercussions would it have? Um, and long story short, uh, sort of was talked into doing it as a book and actually uh, carrying out that experiment in real life. Um, so I, I thought it would be a good way, you know, with, with food books or, or nutrition books, you kind of like, take the the angle of like uh, here's how to fix this and and kind of like uh, offering a, a prescriptive thing I, I didn't want to take the angle of like oh this is going to cure everything this is going to you know solve all your problems I wanted to do it from a more uh, cultural or societal aspect um, make it an entertaining kind of uh, personal journey through the world of fermentation exploring the health benefits but not like trying to do a diet book uh, mm -hmm. per se yeah so you mentioned a little bit of there's a big history with fermented foods. So in your research, you must have found out a little bit about it. Like what are the first recorded use uses of fermentation? Like how has it evolved over the centuries? Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest example of how old fermented foods could possibly be uh, would be mead, um, which can, uh, mead, mead, for anyone that doesn't know, is fermented honey, basically, but um, fermented in a liquid form. Basically, why made out of honey would be the easiest way to describe it. Um, that can happen, that can be made without even human intervention. So it's something that we could have actually stumbled across uh, and find in the natural world rather than intentionally making. Um, so there's a good argument for mead probably being the first fermented uh, beverage or food that the humanity discovered. Um, so honey in its natural form already contains all the microbes uh, that would be required to ferment it and it's sugar, uh, as you know, most people probably realize. So, um, so we probably discovered fermented honey, mead, and maybe, you know, other um, fruit, wine, alcohol sort of, uh, sort of concoctions and uh, bread and beer probably were um, right there at the beginning of the dawn of agriculture and there's uh, theories that they inspired agriculture that the reason we started um, domesticating grains is to make either beer or bread or both. Um, I, I would posit that probably, um, and not because I'm in the beer industry, but I, I think just beer probably more practically is easier to make um, sort of on accident than bread. Bread has a lot more like kind of intentional steps mm -hmm. uh, behind it, whereas you can kind of make a, a sloppy half intentional version of beer that probably wouldn't be very good, but I could see how you could whip that up sort of on accident, you know, through a series of, of chance events. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but then cultures have had, you know, any culture that has um, reliable source of dairy has some kind of yogurt or kefir or eventually cheese. And we have um, <laughs> one of the more interesting and now kind of forgotten in, in the modern world, uh, lanes of fermentation are, are fermented uh, fish-based products, which not something that sounds very appealing to most people now, but is actually one of the oldest um, oldest fermented foods in the world. And uh, the original condiments were fermented fish uh, sauces that the Romans and, and uh, other cultures came up with. And that's any culture that was seafaring or had access to fish 
came out with something that was like a, a heavily salted fish-based fermentation. So there's all these interesting um, examples of duplication in pretty much every culture around the world where people would come up with these same sort of mechanisms for preserving food, which was obviously, you know, that's sort yeah. of one of the key features of fermentation and why it's so yeah. um, important. So what sort of prep preparation did you have to do before getting started on this journey? Yeah, um, well, I had a, a, a year about of uh, mental fortitude to uh, research and, and prepare and, and uh, you know, see if I really was up for doing a project this, uh, this strange and intensive. Um, and yeah, to prepare myself, I kind of, there's a, a ritualistic aspect to fermentation I mean, it's very hands-on. It's very you know, rooted in working with, with foods directly and, and you're monitoring the process the whole time. So I, I sort of waited um, right before I started. It was a January 1st to January 1st sort of project. Um, so at the end of December, the year before I started, I went to um, a local, a couple of local farmers markets, got all sorts of um, veggies and fruit and different things. And I spent basically like 48 hours, took quite a bit longer than I anticipated, just chopping up veggies and making dozens and dozens of jars of uh, fermented vegetables, different sauerkrauts, different kimchi kind of concoctions. Um, yeah, and just kind of like launched myself into it with one big fermentation session. And then it really was a process the whole year of kind of figuring out um, what worked, what didn't, you know, I made a lot of weird experiments that were interesting intellectually, but not something that I wanted to subsist off of for mm -hmm. a period of time and kind of figuring out uh, just practically what I could continue to eat and what, what I could uh, eat without burning out on and getting sick of, because that was, that was certainly one of the main challenges of it. Not that there wasn't a, enough variety of fermented foods, but when you're constraining your diet like that and trying to live a somewhat normal life, you, you know, mentally just get fatigued of certain things. Did you have to or did you want to consult a nutritionist at any time you know before or during yeah um i didn't consult a nutritionist directly i mean i didn't really have the resources for that uh going into it and i did consult with a doctor throughout the year so i was monitoring my blood pressure and cholesterol and um uh, all those things and actually found that it, it seemed to trend in a healthy direction i mean blood pressure went down and um, by any, by any measure that the doctor could give me, I seemed to be totally fine going okay. right. Kind of like, why, why do you keep coming back here? Yeah. Like, so you do, you mentioned a few different foods now in, in the beginning of your book, you mentioned those that come to everyone's mind, like sauerkraut, yogurt, beer, cheese. Um, there had to have been other foods. So what else did your diet consist of for that year? In addition to those? Yeah. I mean, a, a big part of it was just in the, in the run-up, I mean, again, I was preparing for this probably, I mean, really since I had the idea and started having conversations about the idea, the concept of it, um, probably had a year and a half to like have discussions with people. And what I kept finding and what was, what compelled me to ultimately go through with it was just how, how, how much unawareness it, at the time, and, and certainly fermentation has caught on more since, but um, how much people were unaware of just basic foods that were fermented where I would, you know, mention like bread and people would pause and kind of cock their head and be like, bread is fermented. Like, 
yeah, yeah, no, uh, you know, and then you get to have that conversation and explain what fermentation is and how it works. And then, oh yeah, and you can kind of connect the, oh, okay, so the, the you know, the, the microbes are causing the bread to rise and uh, sourdough, right, of course, but even Wonder Bread is, you know, even mass produced factory made bread is fermented, just less fermented than sourdough. Sourdough is, you know, more diverse culture, more fermented, but it's a, a, a continuum. It's a, you know, it's a spectrum of fermentation. Um, so it, it enabled me to have in the book, hopefully it inspires those conversations um, of like all these things that, that you didn't realize, you didn't think about the connections between cheese and bread and beer and, and sauerkraut and kimchi. Um, pickles, uh, pickles are another big one where yeah. um, pickles can be fermented and you have to, you can specifically kind of uh, pin down which pickles are fermented, but pickling is a whole other process that is separate and actually kind of opposite of fermentation where, um, you know, it, what I grew up with my grandma doing in central Pennsylvania and Amish country, where you have mason jars in your um, you know, putting those mason jars, sticking vegetables in those mason jars with vinegar and then um, cooking them essentially on, on the stove top in, in the mason jars and you're, you're pasteurizing those jars with heat. Um, that, that basic pickling process is the opposite of fermentation, but um, it's sort of unintuitive when you're just looking at a, a jar of vegetables on a store shelf, what went into making that. Um, and so pickles and, and other vegetables like that provide an opportunity to explore that difference and, you know, show how preserved foods in jars even can, can be totally different ends of that spectrum. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I, I came up with concoctions like um, trying, to, trying to find different breakfast foods. So I would lightly ferment oats and uh, have like a lightly fermented kind of coconut water kefir and lightly fermented um, fruits and make kind of a, a weird fermented smoothie basically where it's just again that's a spectrum so you can ferment things for months or years and you can ferment certain things just kind of overnight trying to assemble uh, replicants of common foods through fermented foods so like a tempa reuben or um, you know different sandwiches combining different um, different ingredients like that but fermented meats are another one where you, you say fermented meat and people picture like a steak brining in a jar full of water or something. And I'm like, what, <laughs> you know, what would that be? Um, and um, yeah, but the charcuterie, you know, salami, pepperoni, um, uh, prosciutto, like all, all these, like uh, a lot of fermented food is essentially like the fancy appetizer yeah. treasure you get yeah. at like a party or a restaurant. What was, and you, strange is, is subject to anyone's right opinion, in your world, what was the strangest foods you ate over that year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of options <laughs> uh, when you're getting into fermentation. Um, I mean, I, I have a hard time picking between the two, that, two candidates that come to mind because one I would eat again, but probably most people would find it much stranger and one I would never eat again, but it seems more harmless. Um, and so the, the latter would be um, century eggs, which are, it's kind of a, you know, a cute name where it's like not actually fermented for a century, but they're eggs that are, um, it, it's a Chinese delicacy um, and there's versions of it in other cultures, but essentially eggs that are um, 
fermented through an alkaline fermentation rather than an acidic fermentation, which is very unusual. And they um, sort of gelatinize, I mean, it's almost a, a almost a alternate way of soft boiling eggs essentially through fermentation. Um, so they come out sort of gelatinous, like, but like a old stale gummy bear kind of consistency <laughs> rather than a soft boiled egg. Okay. Um, and I think the, the ones cool. I had, I believe were quail eggs and I think you can find uh -huh. duck eggs and I'm sure chicken eggs, but essentially they look like old geodes. If you Google century eggs, you'll, you'll find pictures. They look like purplish greenish geodes with like a, a very odd looking <laughs> yolk. Um, they look very strange. They have the consistency of like an old stale gummy bear and oh. they don't actually taste that odd. I mean, are I, they a delicacy? They're a delicacy right? and they're typically believe... not eaten on their own. And I did eat them by itself. I mean, cause I, I couldn't really make like a bowl of ramen that was fermented. Or, or yeah, I forget what they're eating in uh, off the top of my head, but they're you know they're kind of used like um, as part of a, a soup or you know something like that. So yeah. I, I don't think I ate them in the proper context. I'm sure they're much better when done. <laughs> um, but just the consistency of it was so strange and off-putting that I, I just don't I don't know that I could ever return to that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, then I also went on a quest to. Um, to Iceland to uh, try the, the fermented shark meat. Um, and I thought I knew how to pronounce the Icelandic term for it. And then after talking to someone from Iceland, I realized that I just can't even come close to, to saying it properly. So I'm not gonna try. <laughs> um, but it's essentially, yeah, going back to this tradition of, you know, if you have access to, uh, to fish or sharks for that matter, you're gonna come up with some kind of fermented food based around that. Um, and it, uh, it, it's very, very pungent. Um, it has this kind of ammonia sting that comes up through your nostrils and it sort of burns out all your senses. And it's uh, fishy and meaty in a, the strangest way. It's really a singular experience. I highly recommend everyone go to I Iceland and try it. And you talk about microbes in your book. So they're, you clearly feel there are health benefits to fermented foods, correct? Or you found this in your research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, this is something that's still um, a, a subject of a lot of ongoing research. Um, but yeah, all, all the, the microbes that, um, well, and there's kind of two sides to this. So you're ingesting microbes that, um, you know, arguably, it, again, still ongoing research, but arguably kind of reinforce our, our gut microbiome. It's unclear exactly, you know, how much these re reinforcements kind of shift the balance of what's already there. Um, but you're, you're sort of restoring the quote unquote good bacteria, um, which, you know, helps keep your, your you know, your gut uh, ecosystem in balance and kind of helps keep everything level and where it should be, or if you have a deficiency because of antibiotics or something, it can um, theoretically help restore the balance. Um, and then the other part that is, you know, less sexy and less easier to like kind of tout in article headlines online, but um, is more concrete is the, just the fact that the microbes in the fermented food are sort of doing your work for you. So, you know, regardless of what they're doing, once they go into your body, They've already pre-digested the food. They're reducing the amount of sugar in the food, which is um, something that's definitely good for us and making a lot of foods that are 
you know, either hard for us to digest, like grains and um, beans and olives and, and dairy, all, all these, like, you know, uh, heavily fermented cheese is going to be a lot easier to digest than just milk. Um, there's a lot less lactose in it. Humans aren't really engineered to digest lactose. Gotcha. So what foods did you miss the most? Mm. Yeah, um, well, the first thing I ate at midnight um, on the day that I was done, New Year's, New Year's Day, um, when I was done, I scarfed a bowl of uh, uh, guacamole, guacamole and chips, uh, had made various attempts to ferment avocado, and that was uh, one that I did not succeed at. I had tacos, I think, the rest of the day, uh, so just kind of... Uh, to, to go back to that, that concept of like, um, when you're eating fermented foods, you're kind of looking at everything as its individual components and kind of thinking about food on its own individual terms, but rather than um, as a meal where you're just kind of taking for granted all the individual components. It, it was nice to just being able to go thoughtlessly back to throwing a taco together, throwing a sandwich together and yeah. eating, eating the concept rather than eating the components. Yeah. So what do you hope readers take away from this book? Um, I hope it, uh, you know, inspires some curiosity um, for the natural world and all the things that are easy to overlook. I mean, fermentation is kind of this very almost easy and obvious metaphor for how um, prone we humans are to overlook the natural world. Um, and in this case, kind of literally because they're, we're overlooking microbes that we actually can't see with our eyes um so yeah it, it, just because we can't see this world doesn't mean it's not important and doesn't mean we can't gain from it um and you can kind of take that mindset and apply it elsewhere as we said earlier in your introduction you've now published four books and your last three have been on day hikes do you have plans for any future books yeah, of course. Um, yeah, as a writer, I, I think you're always kind of in this um, quantum state of, of there's four possible books you might do and you don't know exactly which one is going to concretely materialize until you've signed a contract for it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm brainstorming a, a whole variety of books and um, you know, it's, it's definitely my passion and um, the through line of these books have kind of like uh, re-examining our perspectives on the relationship between humans and nature and, and um, seeing seeing more uh, more in the natural world around us. That's a through line I am trying to pursue in various ways with various new book ideas. So I don't have anything specific to, to reveal at the moment, but yeah, of course, I'm um, always, always brainstorming new ideas. So what advice do you have for maybe other alums or current students who want to write their first book? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a tough one because I, I'm sure most writers all kind of stumble into their first book in very different ways. I'm, I, I, I would say there's probably um, no definitive path that you can take that'll, that'll get you there, which is um, probably a pro and a con. I mean, I you know, there's, there's no like list of steps you can just take in and it'll guarantee it, but everyone can find their own unique path um, if, if they want. And I think the, the key, I mean, at least from my perspective is, you know, finding something that you're passionate about that um, isn't, you know, is, is 
can be specific to you and that is maybe um, not being talked about as much yet and uh, just learning as much about it as possible and figuring out a way to um, educate or inform people about that in a, in a manner that's kind of unique to your experience. So before we close for the day, would you mind reading us a short excerpt from The Fermented Man? Yeah, of course. Let me... All right. Um, so this is uh, an, ex an ex excerpt um, from my chapter about cheese and also um, growing up in central Pennsylvania um, in what is essentially Amish country on a farm. All right. Cows are not known for many things in America today, mainly producing milk and their alleged propensity for tipping. That's a shame for the life of a simple cow gives us an amazingly thorough look at the workings of the hidden forces that shape our world. In fact, it was a pasture full of these loud, slow creatures, plus a pool of their waste and a handful of clumsy cats that first introduced me to the magic of fermentation. This secret power can be glimpsed again and again around a dairy farm, but it begins with the microbial machinations that allow a cow to digest the plants that it eats. The diet of a cow could not be tackled by our human guts. We're unable to break down cellulose, and so we rely on the magic of the cow and its microbes to transform the world's grasses into cheese. The Lebanon Valley is the quirky Appalachian heart of Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half west of Philadelphia, in an area where horse-drawn Amish buggies remain a regular sight. Pennsylvania is second only to Wisconsin in the number of dairy farms within the state. Its 530,000 cows produce more than 10.8 billion pounds of milk annually. The center of the state can seem like a little more than cornfields and cow farms driving through. My family lived on one such farm for the first 10 years of my life. And though the cows that meandered through the fields all around us could seem to dominate our lives at times, none of us made a living by milking them. We were merely renters. That the red brick home where I was raised and located was located on a dairy farm was simply a matter of housing availability, not lifestyle choice. The farmer himself lived up the hill, a cow pasture separating the two residences. Out back, just a few feet away from where we parked our cars, was the manure pit for the cows. Having cows as neighbors isn't so bad. They're boring but harmless animals until they're concentrated in one small area. The smell that wafted out of this particular area was, as you can imagine, delightful. A cow's digestive system contains four stomach chambers, and the rumen, the first of these stomachs, is home to a civilization of specialized microbes. While the rumen is particular in its functions, its population is extensive. This first of the cow's stomachs contains about a quadrillion microbes working together to break down cellulose into, into digestible sugars. Of course, the microbes resident inside the cow are not breaking down the cellulose out of charity, and they extract their toll for all the hard work they perform. In fact, they consume the resulting sugars themselves. The cow, instead, absorbs and enjoys the waste products of the microbes' metabolism. Afterwards, we humans swoop in and steal their milk. The mere fact that a percentage of humans have adapted their digestive abilities in order to feed milk from another species is a fascinating quirk in evolution. But not content with simply taking the cow's milk and drinking it or turning it into sour cream, we crave cheese. There is a good reason for this. The lactose that still gives many humans difficulties with digestion is consumed partially or in whole by further fermentation. Aged fermented cheese is generally much easier for humans to process than their original stolen milk. But in order to create cheese from our theft, we must steal again. We must return once more to the cow's stomachs. Most styles of cheese rely on an enzyme delivering coagula coagulation inspiring substance called rennet, 
Cheese without it could be no more than, a, than fragile curds or stretchy mozzarella. But until recent technological advances that have allowed us to produce plant-based rennet, the only way to make cheese was to extract rennet from the inner mucosa of the fore stomach of a young slaughtered unweaned calf. And while inner mucosa of the fore stomach of a ruminant calf offers a fantastic name for a cheese-themed metal band, it does seem a bit absurd that the digestive tract of, of the cow manages to play a part in so many fermentations. To think how much of our world is shaped by fields to grow grass, by pastured raised beef, by the needs of a dairy farm to produce milk. How much of our world is shaped by the gut of a cow? After digestion, after milking and even cheese making, the cycle of fermentation inspired by the humble cow is still not quite over. All the grass consumed, all this broken down cellulose, produces a tre tremendous amount of waste. And that waste isn't even done fermenting before we return it to the earth. Perhaps manure is the cow's great revenge. Are you familiar with manure pits? If you need help envisioning what a manure pit might actually be like, try to picture a large concrete swimming pool full of cow excrement. It's exactly like that. The farm that my family grew up on must have gotten a reputation for being a good place to dump unwanted cats. So one defining quirk of my childhood was that we'd have a new pet every few months. A car would pull over, pull away, and we'd start brainstorming adorable names for a feline. At the height of our cat kingdom, we had 13 living with us, some indoors, some outside. We more or less let them do with whatever they wanted, not that there's any corralling cats. A few of the cats, every now and then, would attempt to leap onto the metal grate that covered the manure pit. The grate was designed to be solid enough to support the cows, but allow the excrement to pass through. This way, the cows could carry out their business without having to stand around in it. It dripped through and pulled below in the pit. After successfully, successfully joining the friendly cows, our unfortunate cats would realize that the spaces in the grate necessary for allowing the waste to fall through also made it incredibly difficult, an incredibly difficult surface to tra traverse for a much smaller creature, even one as graceful as a cat. The younger, nimbler cats usually made it back to solid ground okay. A few of the older, less nimble cats, their vision fading and their reflexes no doubt dulled by the noxious fumes wafting around them, occasionally fell into the pit. What happens to a large mass of organic matter in an oxygen-free environment? Everything has to break down eventually, dust to dust. But when your pool is so nutrient-rich and favorable to anaerobic bacteria, what's happening is fermentation. I finally remember, fondly remember that farm and the summer nights spent with my mother rescuing our pets from a large pool of living aromatic brown sludge. Those were formative years. Well, there are some pictures in my head right now that just, woo, might have to skip lunch today. Um, I have a question. Thank you very much. Of that course. was very engaging. <laughs> and uh, my question doesn't even relate to this, but you describing where you grew up in your childhood, what brought you to Marist College? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I mean, I applied to, I think, like six or seven schools, um, and they were mostly in Pennsylvania. I think I applied to one other school in New York, but um, Marist, uh, well, the campus is beautiful, obviously, so, you know, immediately I was like, this is different from where I grew up. Like, the landscape looks different. It feels different. Um, not super far from Pennsylvania, but um, you know, I want to feel like I'm having a new experience somewhere, um, somewhere beautiful and, and different from where I grew up. But uh, I mean, actually, the writing program, um, I like that it was not specifically a creative writing program, um, that it was like a 
it seemed to be a more general writing program. It seemed to be a little more practically oriented. Um, so that, you know, just as a high school student, kind of knowing what they wanted to do, but uh, not concretely, I was like, I want to, you know, a, a not, I don't want to pigeonhole, pigeonhole myself to just a creative writing program. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted something that seemed a little more well-rounded, a little more practical and utilitarian. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, Maris, knowing that writing is sort of a, a difficult thing to um, make your way through the world with, um, I, I thought Maris writing program seemed the best oriented to oh, actually kind of give me a good education and get me somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Well, this was wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for taking time to spend with us and for sharing a part of your book as well. Uh, the book is called The Fermented Man, A Year on the Front Lines of a Food Revolution. Um, for those listening, we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our series highlighting Red Fox authors. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can keep in touch and know every time we post a new episode of Maris Connections, we will continue to bring you conversations with alumni as well as students, faculty, staff, coaches, and others essential to the Maris community. If you have suggestions for future podcast themes or guests, please email them to maristalumni at maris.edu. And be sure to also check us out on Facebook, Marist Alumni as well as official Marist alumni on Instagram. So Derek, thank you once again. We appreciate it and we look forward to your future books. Um, we hope everyone has a great day.